Let's pray together. Father, what a wondrous mystery it is that the God of life was slain by death for us. That the Lord of all creation hung on a tree that in him we would have life. Lord, I pray that today the weight of that truth would bear fruit in our hearts. That, Lord, as we consider these things, that we would find our hope not in the things of the world, not in the faith of those who have gone before us, but that we would find our hope only in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we come to your word together today, I pray that you would speak to us. That, Lord, through these things, your perfect will would be revealed. That, Lord, in the scriptures we would see our Savior. Father, I pray that you would change our hearts and our minds today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus 31. Exodus 31. There's a typo in the bulletin that says Exodus 30. That is incorrect. We are in Exodus 31 today. From chapters 25 through 30 of the book of Exodus, we have found the Lord's instructions for the construction of the tabernacle, as well as the priestly garments and the beginnings of their responsibilities as priests. We kind of see the broad overview. We know that there's going to be more things that are laid out for the priests, especially as we get into Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But we see the beginnings. We need to recognize, as we've said multiple times, that the tabernacle is the place where the Lord dwells among his people, not in his fullness, but in a representative way. And this is even shown in how Israel is to set up camp while they are traveling to the promised land, that they're right in the middle is the tabernacle, and all around it, the tribes and camp. The Lord is to dwell in the midst of his people. This is significant, because the sinfulness of humanity has created division between God and man. Starting back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned against God and were banished from his presence. When humanity was created... They enjoyed full access to the Lord there in the garden. But when they fell into sin, they no longer were able to have that. In fact, the tabernacle and the priesthood were reflections of Eden, causing us to look back at what the Lord is restoring. We talked about how 
There's the lampstand, which resembles the tree of life. We talked about how all of the entrances to the tabernacle are to face in one particular direction so that it's it's almost like you are going back into the Garden of Eden. But this restoration is only partial because there is still the problem of sin. Not every Israelite can go freely into the presence of the Lord. Not even every priest can go freely into the presence of the Lord. Only the high priest can. And there are these levels in which people can go into the outer court and the priest can go into the tabernacle and the high priest can go into the holy place. That's the way that it works. And that is because of this problem of sin. And so the priests must give offerings. They must make atonement to be cleansed from sin. And these sacrifices must be offered again and again and again and again and again because the men who offer them are also sinners. The priests are not made priests because they are more holy and more righteous than the rest of Israel. They are sinful men just like all the rest. But they are made holy by the work of the Lord in offering sacrifices. And in those ways, the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices are all shadows of the substance that is to come in Christ, who is the fullness of the presence of God dwelling among men, and who is the perfect sacrifice that took away all the sins of his people for all time where the priests of Israel had to offer sacrifices repeatedly, Jesus' sacrifice is once for all. Where in Israel at the tabernacle, only certain people could go into the presence of God, now everyone who falls under the sacrifice of Jesus Christ has the presence of God's Spirit dwelling within them. Today in our text, we come to the conclusion of these instructions that the Lord has given Israel for worship. And in these 18 verses, we are going to see just how important worship is to the Lord. He has made provision for our devotion to Him, both in our bodies as well as in creation itself. He has set things apart specifically for his worship. And we should see in that that these things are important. And as we consider our text this morning, my prayer is that we will all recognize anew that what we do when we obediently gather together each week on the Lord's day is commanded by the Lord and it is for our good and ultimately is for the sake of our continuing growth in Christlikeness. So with all of that being said, let's look together at Exodus 31, and we'll read the first 11 verses, where we'll first see those who are equipped for his purposes. If you got one of our bulletins or one of our sermon listening guides when you came in this morning, you'll see that we have two points. That is our first one, equipped for his purposes. So let's read together Exodus 31, verses 1 through 11. The Lord said to Moses, 
See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft." And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahamashak, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place according to all that I have commanded you they shall do. So after the Lord has laid out his very detailed instructions for the tabernacle and all the things that go in it and the materials they're all to be made from, as well as all the garments for the priests, there still remains the question of who is going to build these things. Who's going to make, who's going to make these things? And in the same way that the Lord has set apart Aaron and his sons to fill the role of priests, the Lord has set apart two particular men to lead these efforts. First, there is a man named Bezalel. Now, Bezalel, we're told, has been filled with the Spirit in order that he would have a special level of ability, intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship. So this guy is like a project manager on super steroids. He can do it all. We see the Lord's giving of the Spirit demonstrated in the fact that Bezalel's abilities go beyond what we would normally see. Typically, we find someone who is skillful in metalwork, but not so much as with wood or vice versa. If you go to someone who's a carpenter, we have a carpenter in our mix, Brother Kylie. If you go to Brother Kylie and say, Brother Kylie, can you weld a metal table for me? It probably would not be as good as if he built a table for you out of wood because he is skilled in one way, but not necessarily in another. But Bezalel, we're told, is gifted to work in every craft. Gold, silver, bronze, wood, metal, setting stones, all of it. In artistic design, he can do everything. As a man who can do none of those things, I'm a little envious. I can barely assemble furniture that comes with instructions. But this man has been given giftedness from God to do very intricate, detailed work. If you think back to what he is to build for the tabernacle, these things are incredible. I think about what they call the mercy seat, which is the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. If you think back to what that was, it is a piece of solid gold. And built into it, out of the same piece of pure gold, are these two angels that are facing toward one another on either end of the box. All of it is to be made out of one singular piece of gold. This is the guy who's going to draw it up and build it. 
because he has been gifted by the Lord to do it. But he's not the only one who's going to work. The Lord has gifted other men. Alongside Bezalel, there's a man named Aholiab who has been appointed alongside him. We are not told anything further about Aholiab's ability or function, but it seems as though he's a kind of assistant to Bezalel. Perhaps while Bezalel is kind of the lead designer on the project, Aholiab is going to function as a kind of manager. Maybe it's his job to go get the materials and get other guys to assist in the work. Hey man, Bezalel is going to be working on the, the mercy seat next week. We need you and you because you guys are both skillful with working with gold. We need you to come and assist in that project. Maybe that's kind of what his function was. But the Lord's gifting doesn't stop with just them. He says that he has given all able men ability. This is to be a community project. He has gifted many men with abilities to come in and assist in this extraordinarily important task. We touched on this a little bit last week in speaking about the calling out of the priests, but it certainly bears repeating in this context as well. The abilities and the talents that you have are given to you by the Lord. And he gave them to you to serve his purposes, not your own. And when you take the abilities and talents and skills that you have and use them for your own purposes, instead of submitting them to the Lord, that is sin. That is wickedness. To take what the Lord has blessed you with and to do something else entirely is wrong. So when you think about the men who we know to be exceedingly intelligent, men like Stephen Hawking and Albert Einstein, men who did not submit themselves to the Lord, they are taking what the Lord has given them and they are misusing it. They are sinning in a unique way in doing that. When the time came for these men to serve, they used what the Lord had given them to facilitate the worship of God's people. This is extremely important for us to recognize. Bezalel, with this giftedness that he had gotten from God, could have made a lot of money. He could have been the go-to guy for every housewife that gets a wild hair and wants new furniture. It's redecoration season in our tent and I would love a little accent table. I'm going to go see Bezalel, and he's going to make me a great little accent table. He could have been Chip and Joanna Gaines all by himself way before that even existed. And yet, what is he doing? He is using what the Lord has blessed him with to build the tabernacle and all of the things that go along with it. He is using what the Lord has given him to facilitate worship. Not facilitate his own wealth, not facilitate his own notoriety. He is seeking to assist the people of God in the worship of God. We need to understand 
that while we are given our abilities in order to care for our families, to care for ourselves, the best of what we have should be devoted to the Lord in all things. And it should be devoted to the Lord's church as well. The best of our time, the best of our energy, the best of our resources, the best of all of it is for God and his church. We are to facilitate worship with what the Lord has given us. Because the gifts that we are given are given for the building up of God's people. Paul alludes to this in Ephesians in a couple of different places. In chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So Paul alludes to the building of the temple, and he is saying this is what the Lord is doing in you, because in verse 22 he says, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul alludes to this building, this skillful building in Ephesians 2. He also does it in Ephesians 4, where he talks about men who the Lord has given giftings to, and they are to use their skills to equip the body, which is being built up by the Spirit. So we see Paul carrying over this, this idea into the New Testament church, which we no longer have a tabernacle. We don't have a temple. We don't have fancy fabrics and gold-plated tables. And we don't need them either, so don't, don't try to donate them. Because now what we have is the substance. All of that was the shadow. All of that was to say, look how glorious God is. And now we have God himself in Christ. Where Bezalel was equipped by the Spirit to build God's dwelling place, we are now being built up by the Spirit into God's dwelling place as the church. And the ones who are given a special equipping by the Spirit for this, those are pastors. Now, Hear, hear me say this, okay? Don't come looking to me like you look to Bezalel and be like, Corey's going to build me an accent table. It, it won't be straight. It probably will fall apart. Don't do it. But the Lord gives special equipping to pastors to know and understand the Scriptures, to teach the Scriptures in a way that they are understood by God's people. But guess what else he's doing? He is also giving equipping to the church to hear and to understand. Over the course of time, as you are sanctified in the Lord, you're going to understand the scriptures better than you did before. That's not just because of the teaching of pastors. It's also because of the work of, because of the, work of the Spirit in you. And so not only do pastors have special equipping, but also believers and Christians have special equipping from the Lord. So not only does the Lord give us all equipping for his purposes, he also gives special equipping to certain ones in order to facilitate proper worship. And the role of the church 
is the same as the role of the Israelites who are going to come under the charge of Bezalel and Aholiab to follow the leadership that the Lord had placed over them. Because his intention for them is to do what he has commanded, not to do things in their own way. That's why the Lord gave gifting and leadership. So that it would prevent people from sinning as they are making the tabernacle. And he's preventing people from sinning by saying things like, hey, Lord, I know the Lord said the tabernacle was supposed to do this. We're supposed to use this kind of fabric. But you know what? I've been thinking about it. What if instead we use some hot pink silk? Wouldn't that be beautiful? And we just made the whole tabernacle out of hot pink silk. No. It wouldn't, because the Lord has decreed what the tabernacle is to be. And so the people's responsibility was to follow after these men who the Lord had appointed, Moses and Bezalel and Aholiab, and say to them, you tell us what to do and what to make it out of, and we will do that. Far too often, we want to set terms. We want to decide what we should and should not do instead of looking to the scriptures and seeing what the Lord has told us to do. That is our role. That's my role as a pastor. Despite my calling, despite the Lord laying a burden of leadership upon me, despite the special giftedness, all of that stuff, setting all of that aside, I still have to submit to scripture. I don't get to decide what I think is good or not good and set aside the Bible and do whatever I please. The Bible is our authority. Just in the same way that God's word was the authority for Bezalel and Aholiab, who he equipped for his purposes. The second thing that we'll see this morning is we'll see holy to the Lord. That's our second point this morning, holy to the Lord. Let's look at Exodus 31, verse 12 through the end of the chapter. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So here at the end of God's instructions to his people about worship, we find him again reiterating the command of the Sabbath. He has done this before they arrived to Mount Sinai and talking about the manna and talking about how they were to gather it. He also then did it as one of the Ten Commandments, pointing out to them that they are to set this day aside. And now again, he reiterates it in talking about worship. 
And the whole point is that they are to work only six days, and on the seventh day, they are to rest from their labors and devote the day to the Lord. And I want you to notice what he says right at the start. He has given all of these instructions about the tabernacle and the dimensions and the things inside of it. And he has talked about the table and he's talked about the altar and he's talked about the lamp and the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. He's talked about all of these things. And here at the end, he says, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. More important than any of those things, Setting at the top of the list is, keep my Sabbaths. This is more important to the Lord than every finery that we have seen so far in the laying out of the tabernacle and the priesthood. Why? Because it shows an understanding that it is the Lord who sanctifies them. It's the Lord who sanctifies them. That's what he says right there. It's a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. All of their sacrifices, all of their obedience, all of it is flawed and it's broken and it gives them no refuge from the judgment of God aside from not facing that particular punishment for that particular law that they have broken. When the Lord says, if you do this, you will die, and they then don't do it, congratulations, they won't die. But that does not mean that they are righteous. They are so beset by sin that even their good actions, even their righteousness is filthy rags before the Lord. Their salvation, just like their father Abraham, is found only, only, in faith, and faith particularly in the coming Messiah, faith in Christ himself. This is what Paul showed us in Galatians chapter 3, where he points to the assertion in Genesis that Abraham, quote, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and extends that to all of God's people, saying that we are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Obedience to the law, performing all the sacrifices, those things do not save. It is only faith that saves. We saw this last week as well, where after the Lord gives instructions for an elaborate seven-day ceremony where sacrifices are made to cleanse and purify the tabernacle, all the implements, all the priests in their garments, the Lord concludes it by saying that His presence is ultimately what is going to sanctify those things. There at the end of all of that, he says, and then I will come and I will sanctify. In taking a day of rest, Israel is saying to the Lord that they know that their salvation is not found in their own work. That's what they're saying. Whether we're talking about the physical salvation of harvesting crops or we're talking about spiritual salvation through sacrificing animals, only God can save. Only God can save. There is no other way of salvation. No amount of obedience to the law will actually save. And the Lord has promised to care for His people for His purposes. And so they are to not work 
Even if, for example, the crops are ready to harvest and there's a hailstorm coming, they are not to go out and harvest the, harvest the wheat on the Sabbath. They're not to do that. Because who is it that provides for them? It is the Lord. It is the Lord. This is why there is a death penalty attached to this command. Because in disobeying it, you are demonstrating that your soul is already detached from God and his people. In disobeying the Sabbath command, you are already saying, my salvation, my life is dependent upon me. I have to do these things. I have to make it happen. The Sabbath is inherently saying, God gives life, not me. For Israel, this was shown as being attached to creation. Six days did the Lord work, and on the seventh he rested with the work of creation now complete. This is instructive for us in how we should understand this commandment. Because right now, I'm sure some of you are going, okay, so why aren't we having church on Saturday? We're supposed to keep the Sabbath. Why aren't we having church on Saturday? Well, here's what I'll say. The particular command for Seventh-day Sabbath is for Israel as a part of the ceremonial law. Notice how the Lord frames it here in this passage. Verse 17, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So this particular day, the attachment of it to Saturday is linked to the covenant between the Lord and Israel, and it is referring to the work of creation. So the day is there. The command is in the Ten Commandments, which we've talked before about the Ten Commandments being God's moral law, which is based in his unchanging nature, which means that those are commands that are in effect for all time. So there is still a Sabbath command. It's just not tied to Saturday. The early church immediately began to meet on Sundays, not Saturdays. In Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, also notice that when it talks about the church gathering together, they're breaking bread, a.k.a. the Lord's Supper, but they're gathered on the first day of the week, in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, it says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So again, this collection is being taken up on the first day of the week. So we see there in Scripture, the early church starts immediately meeting on Sundays rather than Saturdays. But the question is, on what grounds was this change made? Who decided that the first day of the week is when the church was to worship and not the seventh? Well, the answer is Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ decided that. And here's what I mean. In Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he has brought about a new creation. Just as the Lord did the work of creation in six days and then rested on the seventh, Jesus has brought about a new creation through his death and resurrection on the third day. 
And just as the Lord rested on the seventh day because his work was complete, when Jesus Christ rose on the first day of the week, his work was complete. All of it was done. Sunday represents the fullness of the new creation that Christ has wrought. And as such, it is the Christian Sabbath. That is why the Lord tied the Saturday Sabbath to the first creation in Israel. And it's why the early church started to meet on Sundays, because we are a new creation. So what that means is that we too are to devote ourselves to rest from our labors and to worship on the first day of the week, the Lord's day, because it is Christ who has made us holy. That's why we gather together. That's why we're here. This is to be a day of rest from our earthly labors and also a day of recognizing that it is Christ and Christ alone who has purchased our salvation. Just as Israel rested on the Saturday Sabbath as a sign of showing that they had full trust in the Lord to care for them, we gather on a Sunday Sabbath resting on the mercy of Jesus Christ for our salvation. Now, because we are no longer under the law, there are no longer earthly punishments that come from breaking the Sabbath. In our passage today, you will see, you heard the Lord say, if you break this, if you break this command, you die. Now, we're not going to gather up a posse and go out and, and execute people who aren't worshiping at church today. Okay, we're not going to do that because that's not the way that this kingdom functions. This is not an earthly kingdom right now. Okay, we are a heavenly kingdom in an earthly setting. And so we're not going to go out and, and force compulsion. But for those who are in Christ, we are going to obey his word. Because the truth is, keeping the Lord's commands is part of the evidence that we are truly saved. Not because works save us. Works do not save us. But the type of fruit we bear always shows what kind of tree we are. Obedience to God's word shows that we are spirit-filled. Now, that's not to say that you're not going to make mistakes, that we're not going to slip up, that we're not going to fail. What it is to say is that when we are caught in disobedience, when we are held to account by our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we repent and we submit ourselves to the word. That's what it means. Because that's what shows what kind of tree we are. Worship belongs to the Lord, not to us. And as such, we don't have the right to make adjustments according to our own desires, to our own preferences. We must do what his word declares and submit to it fully. The Lord takes these things so seriously that he enshrined them in his moral law, writing them on tablets of stone with his own finger. That's what it says there in the last verse of Exodus 31. 
The Lord wrote down the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone with his own finger and gave them to Moses, representing that these commands in particular were commands of perpetuity because they were written on a material that was lasting. We should take these things just as seriously, recognizing that the worship of God is literally a matter of life and death. How serious we take worship is a reflection of our hearts. How seriously we take our devotion to setting aside time for the Lord every single week, setting a full day aside, is a reflection of whether or not our hearts are truly devoted to Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have seven days in a week. And the number of Christians who say, well, expecting me to worship every single Sunday is just too much is absurd. You would not believe how many people have said that exact phrase to me. What if I have other things to do? What, what, if, what, if, I've, what if I've got great tickets to the Saints game? What if, what if my family's in town? What, what if I've got other stuff happening? And? None of those things have eternal significance. None of them. Only the worship of God has eternal significance. That is why these things are so important. We should take them seriously. But we should also remember that by God's grace, these things are not dependent upon us. He gives His gifting. He gives His grace. And He gave His Son all so that we would be able to worship Him freely without fear of doing it wrong. Because the truth is, we are doing it wrong. Can any of us say truthfully that we came into this gathering today with hearts that were focused only on God? With minds that were not distracted by anything else? Can any of us say that we were truly cleansed of all of our sin in a temporal sense before we walked through the door? I would dare to say no. And yet, the Lord receives our worship gladly because Christ has worshiped perfectly on our behalf. Even our failures in this are covered by the blood of Jesus. And so today I would encourage you, I would implore you to submit yourself fully to what his word calls us to, trusting in God's grace to carry us through when we don't understand or when we fail to do what we should but also recognizing that our sins of disobedience mandate repentance and striving to follow after Christ in all things. Does that describe you and your character? Do you gladly submit to God's word? Do you repent when you fail? Or do you flaunt your sin, thinking that God's grace will abound? Do you make statements like, ah, the blood covers it? Eh, God's grace has got it? Or when you're faced with your sin, when you're faced with a life that is not in alignment with God's word, do you repent and submit yourself? Because the mark of a Christian is not perfection. 
The mark of a Christian is not absolute righteousness in all things. The mark of a Christian is repentance and striving for Christlikeness. That's what sets a Christian apart from the rest of the world. And so if you're here today and you say, I am a Christian, but your life is not marked by repentance and striving, real genuine striving, not striving in word only, that I would encourage you to genuinely examine your own heart and ask the Lord to help you to recognize, am I truly saved? And you might think, well, that's awful judgmental, pastor. It's awful judgmental for you to say somebody who says they're a Christian might not be saved. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand, I don't say these things because I want to judge you or because I want to harm you or criticize you. I say these things because I care about your soul. And I could be smiley and happy and tell you everything's great and you're doing wonderful and pat you on the back all the way to hell. But I'm going to have to stand before the Lord one day and give an account. And I won't do that. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you what God's word says. And God's word says that we must be people of repentance. And so the call upon all of us today is to repent and believe the gospel. To repent of our sin, to cast those things aside, and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. Because that is the only way that we can truly worship the Lord. It's the only way that these things actually happen. And so today, maybe you say you've been a Christian for 50 years. Examine your heart. Ask the Lord the question, do I prioritize worship the way that you command me to? Or do I not? And if I don't, do I repent of that? Or do I not? And if you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, You've never once even thought about what it means to repent and believe. The calling for you is exactly the same. Recognize that you are a sinner who cannot save yourself. And what is waiting for you at the end of this life is judgment. Unless you are covered by the blood of the one true perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, if that's you, Come and find me. Come and talk to me. Because I want to share with you how you, too, can know and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Brothers and sisters, let us strive to take worship seriously. Because it is a matter of life and death. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word for the way that you have revealed yourself to us in it. And Lord, I pray that we would take these things to heart and that, Lord, we would submit ourselves to them. That we would see that you have laid out for us in the scriptures how important our worship is. And that, Lord, we would align our lives with that. Father, I pray that we would be a people of repentance that when our lives do not align with Scripture, Lord, that we would forsake all of those things and cast them aside and cling only to Christ as our hope.
And Father, if there are any here who do not know Jesus as their Savior, who have never repented and believed the gospel, I pray, Lord, that even now that you would give them life. Lord, that according to your Spirit, you would take out their dead heart and give them a new heart that is alive. Thank you, Lord, for your promises to us, for giving us rest in Christ. We pray these things in his name.